Hi, welcome to the Charlie Paparelli Show. I'm Charlie Paparelli, and I am so glad that you're here. Every Friday, I publish these interviews. If you'd like to be sure that you don't miss one, is please go to paparelli.com and sign up by just simply submitting your email. As a bonus, you'll also get the blog that I publish on Tuesday mornings. I am a 25-year uh, professional angel investor here in the greater Atlanta area. And during that time, I have talked to hundreds of entrepreneurs who showed me how to start companies and build companies of great value and also of great impact. And from that experience, I created this Charlie Paparelli show simply to continue to talk to those entrepreneurs, just like the one that we'll have today, and uh, who will share their stories so that you can learn from them. And maybe if you're considering becoming an entrepreneur, you'll start your own business. And if you already are an entrepreneur, hopefully you'll get some tips and some good ideas on how to continue to grow your business and create great impact. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Bobby John. He's my guest. He started, uh, he started and built, he started, built, and sold a company, I think before he was 22 years old and became a millionaire early on like that. Just right place, right time. But man, I, can't, I just want to hear more of that story. He's the founder and CEO of Band of Coders. We met uh, a long time ago, I think it was when he first came to Atlanta, uh, probably over 20 years, it could be 20 years ago, we met at the OK Cafe, which was uh, is a tech sort of breakfast dining spot here in Atlanta. Uh, and we were introduced by a wealth manager who I guess was looking to get business from one of us or both of us. We were reconnected just recently by a friend of a mutual friend of ours called Seth Barnes. And Seth is the founder of, and he's an author of a book about adventures and missions. And he actually uh, has a ministry called Adventures in Missions, of which Bobby is on the board of directors there. Bobby is, uh, is a believer that software makes impossible dreams possible. He is a software-centric executive. He is a true entrepreneur, and uh, I'm looking forward to our conversation. So, Bobby, welcome to the Charlie Paparelli Show. Thank you, Charlie. Good to be here. Yeah. Why don't you just, uh, I always was fascinated by this uh, model that you have in Band of Coders. Can you maybe just give an overview of, uh, of what Band of Coders is really all about? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so we started the company with the idea of like, what is a better way to service visionary leaders who have ideas that they want to build out? And we were just seeing a lot of the, as engineers ourselves, just seeing a lot of the bad experiences they were going through. And I'm sure you've heard the horror stories where, you know, they go and they're given a promise on what can be built and how long it'll take and the quality and by the time they're halfway through, they start to realize they're not getting what they thought they were and mm -hmm. they're not technical. So they're not really able to read the code or look at the architecture and decide for themselves if it's good, like much different than building a house where you can actually just walk through it and see there's a crack. Right, yeah. And, so you know, as engineers, magic, oh, yeah. you know, from my yeah. side. Yeah. And so... You know, when we really took a step back on what was causing that, a lot of the times it came down to the person making the promise is not the person who delivers on it. Hmm. 
So you would typically have a sales executive, usually non-technical, you know, going out there with their pricing and templates and whatnot, trying to get the customer to buy. Once they sign it, you throw it over the fence to the engineers and say, here's what, here's what the deal is. Here's what the commitments that are made. And here's when you have to deliver. And the engineers normally like usually know right from the onset, it's not possible. Um, and it's, you, a, it's a terrible to Close that gap and, and you eliminate that middleman, if you will. Yeah. Because yeah, it's a terrible place to be, right? You don't, you don't want to um, let someone down, but you know it's already over before you got started, and then now you're spending the next year. That's an awful pretend. place to be, you know, because as the client, you really don't, <laughs> you don't know you're in an awful place. But yeah. from the from the word go, the person that needs to get the work done knows you're in an awful place. That's, That's an right. awful place to be. That's what I'd say. But this right. wasn't your yeah. first business. Take me back. You know, where did you where did you get started? Well, when I was in college, I was doing computer engineering at the University of Toronto. And that's when um, I walked through the computer lab and I saw someone clicking around on the screen with a big flashing N in the corner. And I asked them, what's that? And they said, this is the internet. Oh, and wow. what year as soon was as that? they just, that would have been 95. Oh, wow. Was that before yeah. Netscape sort of put a it front was, end? It was it? Netscape. Well, it was Netscape is what they were using. So. Okay. You know, Netscape, and as soon as they described Netscape it, developed in up in Toronto. No, no, I can't remember. I thought it was somewhere. I can't remember where Netscape came from. You know that that browser it was developed. It was I'm developed sure uh, within out. academia, though. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Okay, but okay. Uh, so you walk past. You're in the computer lab at University of Toronto, <laughs> and when they described it to me. I knew immediately this was going to change the world. I just could see all the possible. What did you think? I was saying everyone's going to be. Let me ask you this: What did they describe? Well, they were browsing the website of another university, like the University of Ottawa or Waterloo, and they were like going through a blueprint of like the floor plan of the university. Uh huh. And you know, you could immediately see the universities were all connected all the time. So we got like a first glimpse of what it would be like, you know, post dial up when you get to broadband, which was still years away. Yeah. The always connected view is what we got in college because we were always connected. The computer lab. And it was all the universities were. Yeah. We were the first group. So you almost could see 10 years from now. And that's when, you know, the internet really took off is when broadband and always connected right for consumers and businesses because so that, you could see if you get a glimpse of that that early you could you can imagine everything that's happening today more or less what did yeah but what did you imagine when you saw that you said this is the future what do you remember what your thought was back then i mean the first things i was thinking because i was just more of a also a, a product geek was home automation what were you like 20 able, years old yeah in my early 20s um, I could see one day being able to turn on your lights from anywhere. Um, you saw that far into the future by seeing a floor plan at the University of Waterloo? That's what excited me. Yes. That's crazy. The fact that you could, you could control physical devices from a distance was probably where I was fixated. 
How did you know that you would be able to do that? I didn't know it would ever come, but i that's what I knew. It was technically possible. And you said you were a product geek, and that's why that came up? Yeah. Were you doing something with products at the time? Would come, I mean, would I would program products build. that were in the home at the time. Yeah, I would build stuff for my room, like a security system for my room. If my brother opened the door, an alarm would go off and things like that. Like, <laughs> you know, just just kid stuff. But I understood. What computer were you using at the time? Commodore sixty four. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. And what language were you programming in on the Commodore sixty four? Basic. Basic. Okay. And so where do you go where do you go from there? How many years was it from seeing that first glimpse of Netscape to uh graduating? How long did it take? Well, I still had 2 years left, but I couldn't wait, so I started the company maybe 8 months later while I was in school. How did you know about companies? Did your father teach you this? No, no. I come from a blue collar kind of immigrant home. So no, no one in the family had a company, but it wasn't really that I was set on starting a company. I was set on working on the internet, like something like that. And when I investigated a lot of the firms in Canada, no one was doing it yet. So I I couldn't find a company that I would work for. And so the only way to do what I loved or what I was passionate was to do it myself. And so how did you investigate those firms that were you said the other firms, other software yeah. companies, is that what they were? Yeah. Developers? Yeah, software mm-hmm. Other software companies. I mean, the the one I was planning to go to was Microsoft. Um, that's okay. where I wanted to work. And Bill Gates um, gave a speech and the press asked him, what is Microsoft going to do about the internet? And Bill Gates' answer was, we're not going to do anything. The internet is just an extension of the network. We don't, for us to open like a division focused on the internet would be like opening our own hydro electricity company. Hmm. It's ridiculous. And as soon as I heard him say that, I was like, you don't get it. And I'm like, I'm not going to work there. So now I got to find a place to work. So I made my own place. What answer should he have given that would have satisfied you? That he, that he got it. Somebody would have said to you, if you were, if you were Bill Gates and said, what are you going to do about this internet? What would you have said, given the vision that you got so quickly from just seeing the Netscape browser? Yeah, I think you would need a more open-minded perspective back then where it would be like, Microsoft's not going to own the internet. So it's not just an extension of the network. You know, it's this is going to involve the whole world and innovation from everywhere. This is an open standard. So, you know, we're going to help propel this through and it's going to bring every company together under one platform where his angle was more Microsoft will just keep, will keep extending. Well, that's what Microsoft was about at the time, right? You know, it was just basically to gain gain monopoly positions in in effect for different product classes. That's what he was really all about. And uh, so his answer showed that he didn't even know that it was a threat to Microsoft. Mm -hmm. So, wow. All right. So he didn't, he still didn't do bad, you know. I guess when you're uh, when you're big enough like that and you have enough uh, brand and market share, you know, <laughs> you're able to uh, take – you could take your time a little bit before you have to actually jump on. They and, did take uh, their time. They stalled for about 20 years, but um, – That's how long you think it took them? I mean, the cloud is where they've been able to 
now dominate. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Well, they flipped their model from, how long was it that it took them to flip their model from um, what I'll call a license model, you know, with maintenance <laughs> to a SaaS model, which is, which, which killed a lot of software companies, you know? It took them a long time though. Yeah. Because now I buy, I pay $99 a year for the office suite, right? Mm -hmm. Before that, I used to buy it for $495. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So, so, so let let me have one other question just to kind of put this in perspective for some of the younger entrepreneurs. So how did you actually do your research on these other software companies and what they were actually doing? I just read what the CEOs were saying and kind of what their product roadmaps were and their products. And there weren't at that point that many pioneers in Canada. And then again, I was willing to move to work at Microsoft, but you know, that didn't. But all you could do, you couldn't really go online and find any of that information. So you actually, you were reading probably. I read like IT publications, like I would get weekly paper-based news, IT news like eWeek and all these things kind of had a paper version. Right. Like a, news, like a newspaper almost. Right. That makes sense. No, I love that. But that's, those were the days. I'm just trying to put that into perspective for some of these other guys. Like, well, of course, it's an easy thing to figure out what everybody's saying and what they're doing, you know? They'll take you yeah, a minute. No, you're right. Well, it took more than a minute back then. You're good. Very good point. It wasn't a Google search. <laughs> right. It was, it was no Google that is fantastic. So, so what do you do with that? If you say, well, my dream was Microsoft. I wanted to be a software developer for Microsoft and then can't do that. Yeah. Well, you back up and go, okay, what can be done on the internet today? Cause that's where I want to be. And I want to be in the engineering component of it. So, you know, the only answer back then honestly was very simple on an engineering level for those who understood it was getting companies onto the internet, like giving them a web presence because, you know, there was no language yet. We didn't have any programming language to buy or sell or do anything super fancy. Right. All we had was simple HTML. So and HTML basic basically was it, wasn't it? Yeah. And all the basic was like, you know, just in the back end, like CGI really is what you kind of had. So, you know, the first iteration was start a company to just help fortune 500 companies build their web presence. And yeah, that's what we 20, did. Oh, so you're 21 years old and all you, you got your degree. Did you get your degree or did you step out before yeah. the degree? No, no, no. I was still there. I started the company and we did really well in our first year. Got a lot of press. I did want to quit engineering at that point. Um, how did you get, how did you start the company? So speak to somebody, you know, tell, tell your story there. I mean, that sounds to you, it's like, what? I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, talk to somebody, I mean, talk to these entrepreneurs. These are guys in colleges and they want to, they, they want to know, like, what did he do? Yeah. Well, I guess I started by trying to just understand who would buy what I wanted to do, the service that I was providing. And, you know, and what then it was, was getting... the service? How did you define the service? Because there's a lot of places you could have gone. You talked about controlling lights and yeah no that, things. That, we were far from that <laughs> right that's what bring it up. so yeah so it was just you looked at what html did and what the web was then it was a promotional vehicle right uh, you could promote you could promote something 
That was it. It was, was a billboard. Basically, brochures online. Yeah, and that's all we really realistically could do. Even though I had aspirations for the web to go much further, it wasn't there yet. And then you kind of take a step back and you ask yourself, who promotes and doesn't mind that they can't sell? And the answer to that was the entertainment industry. And so then I, you know, we went and put up a booth at a music show, and then Warner Music in in Toronto. Yeah, so it was a local show. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the, uh, Warner Music comes by what and was asks, the booth? "What was it? Was it a? Well, they gave you a table, probably. And yeah. What did you What did you have behind you? Just our name caught in the web, and then we had a computer screen with a website on it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and who was we? You and who? Yeah, two other partners. Oh, you did. Yeah. So these are fellow. These were students with you. Yeah. One was more on the create, one was a designer, graphic design, and then one was more kind of business development. Oh, okay. So the three of you are all standing there behind the table. Yeah. And then- Are you all first gen, are you all first generation? uh, Did you, were you born in in Canada? Yes. You were, okay. Yeah. And- uh, We're all- So you were all Indians? Yes. Okay. (laughs) Great. (laughs) And so what happened at the show? The president of uh, Warner Music walks by and says, asks, what is this? And we go, it's the Internet. (laughs) And he said, "Okay, what's the Internet? And then we explained it. And then a few weeks later, we signed a deal to put every Warner Canada artist on the Internet. No kidding. What did you tell him? Were you the were you the sales guy? I mean, we were all there. We just kind of showed like, hey, look, you can click here and play a song. You can put pictures up, you know, all these, you know, just what a blue underline link is. How You can kind of dig through. You could probably put concert dates up there, you know, just gave some examples of what's possible. And then he gave us the whole roster and said, okay, get all my artists up, build a page for every artist. How'd you price it? Oh, I don't even remember, to be honest with you. Probably very reasonably. <laughs> Do you remember how much that contract was worth? I don't. Maybe 30000 something like that. Well, that was probably more money than you'd ever seen in your oh, yeah. life, right? Yeah, it was, it was a lot for us. Yeah. And so what did you, so he gave you this list of artists and then he gave you carte blanche too. There was no sort of discussion on design or anything else? There's like a rough idea of building like a Warner city was the idea. Okay. So you get, you could walk into a, you know, you click a bar and there's an artist in there. So how long did it take you to develop that? Probably took us a year. That's all you worked on? No, because then we got, um, soon after we got A&M Records, we got Sony Music. Like we started just getting all the labels. How do you get the other labels from, from Warner? Just called them and said we got Warner. <laughs> you called them, so now you're call calling people outside of Canada. Where are these people? No, they're all the Canadian subs. Oh, the Canadian subsidiaries. Okay, so you were calling the Canadian presidents, mm-hmm. or head of marketing. So you're the 20 year old guy calling them up and say, "Look, at this is the kind of work that we're doing for your competitors. How about you and your artist?" That was the yes. pitch. Yes. And did they say? You know, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I'm, you know, I don't understand this stuff, you know. So did you say, well, why don't I come by and show you? Is that what you did? It's about right. 
And what exactly. were you showing? We would just browse through a website and say, this is a URL, this is a domain name, this is a hyperlink, you need to buy the domain name soon. You know, this is what happens when you click. And that was it. And so the guy would say, okay, this seems interesting. So this yeah. is this whole new channel for me for advertising in effect, right? Right. Right. So what do I so what do I do with this, Bobby? I mean, where do I so what did you tell him? I mean We'll build it and you guys market it. Because that's okay. what they do. They're the marketing engines of these of what these artists. When you when you finish that project finally for the uh, president of Canada's what was it? Who was it? Warner Warner Music? Is that what it's called? Yes. And you actually finally got to him and you showed it to him. Do you remember that meeting? Yeah, he loved it. He did. <laughs> he loved it. He was like, and he was, he's a marketing person, right? Like the labels are all marketing. So they get it. They see the power. You don't have to twist their arm. And that's why I was saying it's not like we were magnificent salespeople. It's, yeah, but the other they, side of it is he didn't have anything it. to compare it to either, right? It was the exactly. best thing on the internet. That he has ever seen. That's right. Right? <laughs> Versus today that says, why doesn't it do all these other things, right? We don't have right. any of that. No right. comparison. It no was comparison. brand new. It's sort of like the perfect first man, Adam, right? When he was uh, made by God. He was perfect. Yeah, good <laughs> Compared analogy. to every other man because there wasn't anybody else, right? So yeah. what did you, uh, so do you remember, so when did, how old were you when you started that with your friends? I was actually in my probably early to mid twenties. I was in okay. schools. So I was probably whatever you are in about third year. Yeah, I would think that third year you're like twenty. Twenty to twenty one. Yeah. We had grade thirteen in Canada, so I was probably one year behind the US standard. So you were twenty two. That's when you started it. You deliver yeah. this thing to this guy, you're twenty three. Mm-hmm. You pick up other custom. You pick up other music labels doing the same yeah. thing, and you got more and more efficient, right? Because you had built. You just yeah. kind of take from Warner, strip out the names, and kind of place the next one, right? So you got more efficient in delivering this thing. Did you just stay in the? Is that what your business was? It was all just building websites for these, for uh, for these um, entertainment businesses. No, we moved to um, next was IBM came to us to do a site for their new e-commerce product. So we built that and that got us into kind of more corporate. And from there, we went to all the banks, financial services, one by one in Canada, five big banks. So by then we branched out. Then That's now, then we're So how did you know, how did IBM even find you? It was IBM Canada again, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So that know, was actually. a real plus for you to be Canadians in the biggest city in Toronto. Yes, that helped. Yeah. And to That's be early. Interesting. So it gave you a chance to sort of to have this sort of barrier to entry. I mean, as far as Canada went, you weren't like in New York or LA or, you know, which I'm sure was a, was hyper competitive there. You were like, yeah. the, you were like, were you like the only game in town, really? There was like three of us. But we could see each other when we looked out the window. Like we all knew who else. It was early. It was super early. All my employees I had to hire from the caves of the universities. Dark, dark rooms where the hackers lived because no one else knew what the internet was. 
But you knew you knew how to talk to those people and how to relate to them because you were one. I work well with engineers. They're my they're my people. Yeah. And so when you start a conversation versus being a marketing person who's trying to hire an engineer. Yes. They're, they're probably intimidated by the person. Yes. And that's what's kind of led to Band of Coders, right? Where we're really helping engineers start yeah. Band of Coders offices and teaching we're them. Get to the- that. But how did you get to the, so then as, so you get IBM, from IBM, you leverage off of that credibility to move into corporate, right? So now you get into banks and then you probably got into other verticals. Had it done, and it was all the same thing. It was sort of brochures online in effect. So yeah. what happened to the business? How long did, uh, at some point you, you said someone bought the business, I think. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the internet did evolve and we got programming languages. We started getting Microsoft built some ASP and like there was some backend languages specific for the internet. So now we're into building more interactive sites, having a substantial engineering team. When you say now, interactive, what, what was the interactive nature of the site? Like you could actually have live data coming out of a database, which okay. wasn't available when I started. So now that you can have dynamic information, that changes things. I got it. Okay. Right? It's not static anymore. Um, yeah. So we continued to grow when we got to about like 120 people. I was feeling a little bit. Um, out of my depth in terms of leading. Now I didn't know everybody's name and things like that. So I hired a CEO to take my position. And less than a year later, we got acquired by a public company called CGI out of Montreal. Yeah. So this, tell me how you got to, man, I just can't even imagine 120 people and you're 23 or 24 years old or 25, whatever it is. You have no, the only... Your expertise is building websites and programming, programming languages. You know, um, you've gotten, you sort of picked up on your own marketing and sales, right? Talking to bigger customers. So you weren't intimidated by those people, which is pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you get to the decision that you said, I'm going to hire somebody to take my position? I would, yeah. that's very unusual for a founder to displace himself. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, kind of, I started the company with the passion for the technology. And when it got to that size, I think once you break 100, 120 people, politics start to show up. Yeah. And that's when I was feeling over my head. Like, what I did just. What the politics look like? Do you remember? What were the things that you would just that you just stopped enjoying it, you know, is what you get to, right? I mean, this is like... Yeah, you couldn't you couldn't just say what made sense and it happened. Okay. Pretty well it, as a founder. You're like, hey, here's where the world is going. We got to do it. And you can't just say it and it happens. There's this whole change management process. There's people you have to convince. There's, you know, the whole process when you're that size and you don't know everybody. So everyone doesn't have a relationship with you. Does the policy starts because the... Because people are selfish? I don't know. I, I don't know if I still really understand politics really that well. I just I just know it's there. And that's when I felt just, I just needed Knowing something. a little bit about your history, I think it's also one of those things that you, uh, once, once you sort of dipped into that pool, you uh, spent the rest of your life trying to avoid it. 
<laughs> some oh, people wait. run to it. Some people run <laughs> run from it. I think yeah. I'm sort of a run from it guy. Said I'm not yeah, going to build something like that again. Yeah, it's not something I want to be an expert at, really. I but though I did want to hire someone who was to keep things going. So how did you know that that was the answer, as opposed to just take you were in control? Why were you the guy that was the CEO at the time, and the other two founders? Uh, yeah, we were. It was myself, and the other was a co-CEOs. You had co-CEOs. Was it? The or co-CEOs? we would alternate. I can't. I can't actually remember. Either we'd alternate the role um, between each other every six months or a year, or do it together. What a disaster! I can't even imagine that working. Yeah. So you'd be CEO for six months, and then you say, "Ah, oh, I had enough of this. I'm going to go back to coding. Why don't you? <laughs> I'll talk to the clients. Why don't you go be CEO for a while?" Yeah, I mean, it would be, it would alternate between sales and CEO, maybe operations. In other words, like operations and sales. Well, when you look on that back on that time, what did you learn? Yeah, I'm pretty. I mean, it, I did bring someone who really understood more about kind of how the organization operated and had the patience to take a vision and slowly execute it. And, you know, I saw there was value in that. I learned the value in that role and that person. So if you, but, but you said my, well, I was really good and I'm still really good at speaking to these programmers in the caves of the university, right? So now you say, I don't want to do this CEO stuff. And your co-CEO probably said, I don't want to do it either. Right. So now you got to talk to somebody who's not in the caves. Mm-hmm. How did how do you even do that? Because so this hard. is a situation that other entrepreneurs run into and they go like, I don't even know where to find those. I don't hang out with those people. It was hard. How did you go about it? It's just really hard. I'd have a weekly meeting. He'd present. I'd make comments. There'd be times you're frustrated. Wait, that's the guy you found? Yes. Yeah, I'm talking about how did you even find the guy? Oh, yeah. So if you when you come to that decision, you go, okay, we need to find one of them. I don't I even know what them do and what they smell like or look like or do like. And I said, find me a coder. I'm all over it, right? Yeah, I hired a search. I hired a search firm. How did you know about search firms? Well, they probably called on you. Is what probably happened. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. I maybe got some advice from some clients and things like that. That were oh, okay little more senior than me on how they would approach it. And a lot of our clients even then and to this day are very helpful and want to see. Were you a a seeker back then as a young man? Were you a seeker of advice? Yes. I love getting advice. People who've been there before. You did. When did you develop that? Did that show up early in your life? Yeah. I mean, maybe it comes with being an engineer where you're kind of building things for other people or someone else has the idea. So mm-hmm. you're always asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. But there's those questions are sort of out there questions. When you ask for advice, like how do I find this, this person? Like we talked about this uh, new CEO is going to displace me and my partner. Um, or you have a business issue that you don't know how to deal with. That's very personal. That's basically yeah. saying, I don't, you're basically by stepping into it saying, you know, I don't quite know what I'm doing here. And, you know, I'm looking for a little help. Yeah. Were you always yeah. that guy? 
Yeah, I think it came there pretty quickly. I was thrown in the fire with this business and it grew really fast and I was very young and I didn't have a lot of places to go for help. So yeah, like it didn't take long before you kind of put up the white flag and say, I'm not going to be able to learn this by myself in real time. So you were forced into asking as opposed to naturally just asking in effect, if you will. So it's a learned behavior asking for help. Sure is. I've talked to some other entrepreneurs, which have been interesting. It's sort of something that they just did. It was like part of their life, Hmm. part of their operating system, if you will, the way I would put it, you know? Uh, And some of us, it becomes a feature that we add to our operating system. (laughs) Yeah. For me, it was probably added. It was added. Okay. Uh, I would think that as an engineer, that would be true because you kind of learn the code. You learn, I mean, you learn the tech, the uh, the language, if you will, and then you kind of code in that language. You're in control of it. And the whole idea yes. of coding is to control the machine to have it do the things that you want it to do. Yes. So where did you find this guy? Ultimately, I mean, where did Who he was he? From? Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty exciting, actually. He worked for Steve Jobs. Um he reported to Steve Jobs. He was the president of Apple Canada. I know that guy. What was his name? Pete Jones. No, there was another guy that spoke to us. He spoke at the High Tech Prayer Breakfast here in Atlanta. He was okay. Well, this is yeah. This is probably back. after Pete Jones. Then maybe yeah. This is back when Apple was not doing well, so um, it wasn't super hard to recruit him away. So he took. But I do, I do, I do brag about stealing someone from Steve Jobs. <laughs> direct a direct report of Steve Jobs. And what did he? Uh, what was he? What was he saying back then about Steve Jobs? That was always the thing that uh, we had a couple of people from Apple that actually spoke at the post app. I'm talking people that left Apple, and um, that spoke at the high tech prayer breakfast. And I remember one guy, he went back to Apple and I went to visit him while he was at Apple and he was one of their executives and reported to Steve jobs. And of course I'm asking a few questions about Steve jobs, right? He says, you know, this happens all the time. He says, when people come to Apple, no matter who it is, or if I go on a sales call, the first 10 to 20 minutes are always talk about Steve jobs. So did this guy talk about Steve jobs when you hired him? You know what? I don't think I asked him a lot of questions about Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs, by that time, he had come back to Apple. He had just come back. Yeah, He had just come back. Oh, okay. So Apple was kind of upside down at this point. And so he comes and joins you. And uh, what was it like then? Did you report to him? Yep. I mean, I was, you know, chairman of the board, but I was also VP of sales. So it's kind of a dual. And so you sat there at, how old were you then? Probably 26. 26 years old, reporting to this guy who is now 45. Yeah. Think about that. So a 20 year difference. That's a, that's tough. Did he treat you? Did he treat you guys? uh, Did he treat you guys with the respect that you felt you uh, deserved for having built this company at this point? There were days it wouldn't go back and forth. There'd be moments where you felt, I wish I was just older. It's hard being a kid. Did he treat, so he treated you like a kid then? Sometimes. Yeah, I'm not going to say so. all that. It would be hard I mean, not to. Think about it. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, now that you've blown past 45, I guess. Yeah, now it's great. I got where I wanted to be. 
How old are you now? 47. 47. So you know, just think having people working for you that are 25 years old that own the majority of the company. Yes. Uh, the challenges that that guy had. It's hard, yeah. Given his perspective. Pretty interesting. So what happened? Ten months later, we got an offer to be acquired by a public company. And I thought about it. And I mean, they're a big company. And after thinking about it, I thought it was the right decision. And I had one requirement, which was kind of the test or the fleece. Um, I told them I'm not going to fit in a 10,000-person company. So if you want to buy my company, you can, but I'm not coming with it. They thought about it and agreed. What about the other two founders? Uh, They didn't go either. They didn't either. So did I spoke, so, yeah, I was I was a spokesperson for all of us. Was the Apple Canada or the former Apple Canada president, was he the key to that deal happening? He was how I was able to say, look, I've already built an executive team. The place is running. You don't need me. Yeah. So, you know, that I, I don't think I would be able to really credibly say that if I didn't have him. So that really helped. Yeah, I think when we buy companies, having sold a few companies and having been bought by some companies, they look for an executive team. They're looking to uh, people that kind of look like them to mitigate their risk, you know, in yeah. an acquisition. So uh, I guess you guys were so young that they were saying, like, well, what are they bringing to the table anyway? We've got people that can kind of come in and take it from here. So they were buying the client base and they were buying the uh, – the breadth of expertise that you guys had because you had yeah. 20, 100 and how many people did you have? Yeah, 120. And they wanted to get into the internet space. So that was the way in. That Where was, was the way CGI in. located? Were they out of Philadelphia or something? Montreal. It was Montreal. Okay. Huh. Okay. So did you wind up becoming a millionaire on that deal? Mm-hmm. 26 years old. Yeah, it's quite a ride. What's the uh, what's the most money that your father ever made in his life in one year? I don't know exactly. I would have to guess. I'm going to guess 40 grand. I don't 40 know. 40 grand. I'm going to guess. And you were making, how much were you making when, uh, before you sold? I don't know, 150. 150. And then you sold and became a millionaire. Did you understand what a million, what millions of dollars worth at the time? Nope. Wow. Because I remember when I actually, so we sold out, I, uh, I had that hit and I didn't have the bigger hit like you had. We didn't have a company that was that big, but I remember, I think wound up with a million and a half or a million eight or whatever thing. And I, and I was making 60 grand a year and I, my father had never made more than 28 grand a year. And I, I didn't even know what it meant. Mm, yeah. How did it, when you sold and you closed the deal, the money's in the account, you're unemployed, right? What did you, uh, what were your thought? What were you thinking back then? Were you married? Were you married? Yeah, I, just, I had just gotten married maybe six months before the deal. Um, yeah, How it was tough. You meet your wife. 
at a Christian Indian conference in Michigan. Okay. So <laughs> you're, so you're, <laughs> I love that. You don't meet, you don't meet uh, many Christian Indians. Right. They're very rare. So you have to go to these things to find them. So uh, were you looking for a wife? Um, probably just starting to think about it. Okay. And a yeah. Christian Indian, these are, is it a denominational kind of thing? Is it just? Yeah. So all like the oh, Christian. You have to be just those two things. You had to be a Christ follower south, and you had to be an uh, Indian. Yeah. Christ follower from the Southern part of India. They all get together in a different state every year. About 10,000 of them. It's just the way to stay connected. Okay. I'm getting just a piece of your face here in the, oh, there you go. There you go. Now you're back again. So there's how many you say from Southern India? I mean, there's probably tens of thousands, but at least 10,000 meet at this conference. In America. Mm -hmm. It's an annual conference. Yes. And what's the purpose yeah. of the conference? I guess just to stay connected with other, you know, it's hard to find Christian Indians. So. Okay. Meet and stay connected with them. Can you give somebody just a little bit of a history lesson on Southern India and uh, Christianity? Yeah, the belief is that um, the Apostle Thomas came to the southern part of India and introduced us to Christ, which is why, like, my grandparents are Christian in India. And your parents were Christians? My parents came to America as Christians and raised us. In the faith, was there a was there a Christian Indian church, or did you just? Uh, yeah, my parents planted a Christian Indian church, which was common. Like when they came to this country, they would plant a church that would speak their native tongue. Was it denominational in some point? Like, was it like Catholic or Methodist or Episcopalian or? No, it was Protestant. So it'd be probably you'd have all kinds, but. Brother in Pentecostal. I don't know if the terms match to what they're in Western culture. But they would have the term, they would have the thoughts of being born again. That would be the yes. terms, those kind of things. Yes, born again was central. So when was it then? So as, as a Christian Indian who's now born in Toronto and you go to church, um, so you have, you're speaking in the native tongue, you're speaking in the native tongue of Southern India, whatever. There's so many dialects in India. I don't even know, don't even know what the so name is. So many. <laughs> yeah, I, had a, I had a friend that once, he was a CFO here in town. He moved back to India, but he showed, he gave me some Indian money and it shows all of, all of the uh, different dialects. And I think there's only, what, maybe 12 on the bill, on the, on the currency or something. It's like ridiculous. And he says, well, there's many more than this. Yeah. It blew my mind. So at what point did you uh, then, is it part of your Christian faith that you have to commit yourself to Christ at some point that you have to make a personal decision? Huh? Yeah, did that as a maybe 12-year-old. There's baptism, a decision to be baptized at that point. And, I see. Yeah. And that's how, that's how you become a Christian in the Indi Christian Indian church is uh, at 12 years old, you make a decision to say, I want to do this. When does that faith, when does the faith actually become yours? 
When does it stop being your parents and then start becoming yours? I mean, my personal experience is when you go through crisis, personal crisis. And what was that for you? After I sold the company. So good. So tell me what happened. Well, we moved to New York for my wife's residency. She matched at NYU and she went to work. I was new to this country, living in New York City, didn't have my company anymore, didn't have my church, didn't know anybody, didn't have my wife. She was at running, you know, three-day shifts so in her residence. And, and, and without work, you're kind of without purpose as a 27-year-old young man. Yeah, it was tough. I had no community. And I was kind of lonely and lost. Um, so what happened? Well, I just well, had to ask myself. That, then what, what, how did that? Well, then I was just wondering. If my, I was wondering if my faith was real because I wanted to like focus a little more on it. But to make a larger commitment, I wanted to be sure it was real. Yeah. So I questioned it. I just asked, is it real? Who did you ask? God. You did. Okay. Yeah. Were you part of a Christian Indian community church in New York? No. no, I went to a church called Times Square Church. Is that Tim Keller? David Wilkerson. David Founded Wilkerson, okay. And uh, did the church play into this time of confusion? Did it be? I mean, they had good sermons, like better sermons than I'd ever heard. So they had good teaching. So that helped. Okay. I went there a lot and definitely like got a lot from the teaching, but. You know, it was more of just asking God to prove himself to so me. So how did that work out? Well, great. It took a little while, but he did. <laughs> well, how did he do it? How did, how did that transformation take place? He just spoke through various ways. Like someone sent me a book and it was talking about eternity and it was like perfect timing and it came out of nowhere. Certain sermons, certain just experiences. I just believe God uses everything in his domain, which is everything, to speak to us. And when it all added together, it couldn't have been a coincidence. It was just overwhelming that he answered and just proved himself. Was it the preponderance of the sort of evidence that came your way that sort of tipped the scale, got you to a tipping point, if you will? Uh, I mean, there was some evidence. Was it a heart change? You follow me? Yeah, I mean, I read you're the an evidence. Books. So you're looking for evidence, right? You know, the other thing is it's a spiritual transformation, right? I mean, how yeah. did all I'm trying to, I don't know if you could put this into words, but it would be helpful. I mean, I read the evidence for sure. There was books called like Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh, somebody. So I, I read all McDowell, the evidence. That is, yeah. yeah, so I read the evidence books, but it wasn't really what did it. I mm-hmm. think it was just, it was just the fact that God answered. That was all it really took is that there were some miraculous things that happened where I, someone wanted to prove himself to me that he existed. And it was a bunch of little things that I just kept an eye on. And by the end of it, I was just like, wow, somebody heard me. Um, Do you remember like, when so, the wow moment came? Um, I don't know if there was really... No, I don't. Okay. It's really. I, I just, I just, I was like, he's speaking to me. I can't believe this. I asked him to prove himself and 
he's well, you doing did something with, that with, that with many the of us. You did something that many of us don't do. Well, first of all, you were put into a position where you literally were all alone. You know, and that's uh, being alone in New York City is alone, like really alone, yeah. right? Yes, and yes, uh, it is. and you did something that instead of just saying, "Well, I don't know if this is really true," you said, which is where people sort of end. So they just stay in doubt, if you will, right? And then they sort of their life kind of goes from there. What you did is you said, "God, is this true?" are you real? Is Jesus real? Is everything I learned as a kid, is it true? You know, and if it is, you need to answer me. Hmm. Very few people do that. That's a big step. I did that too. I was in a um, AA meeting at one point and they were um, discussing who's the higher power. Right. And some people said, oh, the higher power, the people in this room and the higher power for me is this book of AA. And other people said it's my sponsor. And I remember sitting there saying, you had 12 years of parochial school. Now, you don't have this desire to drink anymore. And you tried to stop drinking for 10 years unsuccessfully. And this has been taken away from you, Charlie, ever since you gave it to God. So I asked the question, I said, so this miracle happened in my life, but I don't know who this, I can't answer the question, who's my higher power? I wonder who the higher power is. And it was like within days, people came out of the woodwork. That hmm. sort of, but it was amazing the way it kind of drew me. He, he answered that question so clearly over a period, uh, well, first immediately, and then, of course, being the skeptic over a period of probably, six months before I then committed my life to Christ. But you have to start, I think, as I did and you did, which is, all right, so who are you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So how did that change your life then? Uh, how did that change your state of loneliness then committing your life to Christ, to knowing he's real and believing him? Yeah, I mean, that gave me purpose again. Ah, How's that? I could kind of, I, I wouldn't say it was, it all came to me at one point, but then the years to follow to look at life as more of an adventure and that you're never alone and that there is a higher power that is listening and that wants to do this journey with you called life. And you know, he has everything under his control. So, you know, what an amazing father to have mm. who knows the desires of your heart, is eager to hear them, wants to show you what this thing he created called life is. And he has control of and access to every resource on the planet for your joy. Huh. I mean, it just gives you such like every morning. Is this like another adventure? So how did so connect that to what you just said, which is just astounding. I just love that. To have that kind of presence in your life, you know, that is so powerful yet so loving is what I mm -hmm. kind of then connect that to the statement that you said, I've had I found that I found purpose. Yeah. 
So then at that point, then you kind of look at, like for me, it started to evolve and even to this day where just life is this gift that's given by a creator, by God. And my journey is to just learn like what he had in mind when he created me, just like I'm a creator too. So like I, I'm an engineer, so I build things all the time. So there's always a purpose on why I build something. And life is this kind of just interesting puzzle where I don't even know myself as well as the person who made me. And together we're going to figure me out. I'm going to figure him out. I'm going to get to observe all this other stuff he created. And that's kind of the journey. And it's not much more complicated than that. And it's like, what a better, what, what more could you ask for? So what you've got is what I'm, again, to helping maybe the audience a bit is, is the people listening is to say that he creates for a purpose because every creator creates for a purpose. And you've done that firsthand being a creator, as you're saying. And anything that we create, is, it's, a, it's a reflection of, you know, we're made in the image and likeness of God, right? So he creates, we create. And it's not a, a defined purpose as opposed to knowing that you were, def, you were created for a purpose. So every day, the desires of your heart bring you along on that purpose. Exactly. And that there's nothing about you that is really an accident, right? There's this nothing. This is really helpful for me. This is really, yeah. I love this. This is great. Is your, and so your wife was... She was in, she was over her head, overwhelmed at that time. And you were cut loose. She was being, she was, her day was being dictated to her from literally every time her eyes opened to, to the moment that they closed or were That's allowed right. to close. <laughs> That's right. Every three days she would come home, go to sleep for eight hours and leave again. Yeah. So she was in a much different space than you. How did that, how, what, during that, what was that marriage like at that time? I'm sure it wasn't what you had envisioned when you proposed to her. Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. I don't know if I'd really, I mean, I would just try to stay out of her hair. Like, <laughs> you know, let her go to sleep, let her wake up and go. It was, it was crazy. I mean, New York is obviously like, again, everything in New York is at another level. So residency in New York city is at another level mm -hmm. you know and so i just stayed out of her hair and that's where you know early on i had already come to that conclusion like i'm not going to see her for a couple of years <laughs> so well, then what happened when you so so after you come to this have this god is real moment and you really get you, this this sort of grace over just flows over you in effect now that you're kind of grounded i'll call it that i was looking for the right word where did that take you as sort of a next step so she's still going 100 miles an hour but you're not lonely anymore no and now i'm starting my adventure where you wake if you imagine like a child if you have children you know what it's kind of like you wake up every day you grab your dad's hand and so what did that look like tell me what follow you did. him to say where what are we going do? I know. So, okay. So I just got up every day. I started walking around New York. I started exploring. I started seeing things. I just kind of said yes to stuff. Um, you know, 9-11 
happened right then too. So I had to go through oh, that. Really? Huh? This so was in I, the middle of a residency? Yes. Was this after you came to the Lord there? Yes. Okay. And so where were you actually, where were you on that day? I was sleeping, sleeping in, like I did every day as a retired 25-year-old. <laughs> well, that's what most retired 25-year-olds do, I'm sure, yeah. right? <laughs> I love that concept. That was a retired 25-year-old. Great. <laughs> Um, yeah, I was sleeping and my mom called from Toronto and said, asked me if I smelled any smoke because we didn't live too far from the trade center. And she said a plane hit the trade center. So I ran to the roof with my camcorder and the first, the first tower was hit, but I watched the rest of it. You saw that next, you saw that, how, where were you staying? We're at 23rd and 3rd, so probably just kind of a mile or two. Oh, yeah, that's not bad. I mean, it was right there in front of you. Yeah. And then I always say, like, it was pretty traumatic on my camcorder. I have people jumping off the roof to their death off that building. How did that affect you when you saw when? What did you, when that second plane hit, what did you think? I mean, I... Didn't know what were, what was going to be hit next. I had the Empire State Building over here. I had the Chrysler Building behind me. I had the World Trade Center in front of me. Um, you just didn't know. If you're standing there, you just don't know what's next. But you knew, That's, but you felt, so what you're telling me is you felt like you were in danger. Yes. But okay. there's nowhere to really run. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Man. And then you see... Man, I can't even imagine seeing that. I saw that second plane hit real time on the news, but I wasn't a mile from it watching it through the uh, eye of my camcorder. Yeah, it's really different when you're there because you do have that 360 degree thing. You have the smells, you have the sounds, you have the weather. Um, you have people running around like just, you, have the, you know, you get to see every, everything, all your senses. And that's what you just can't quite get on a TV screen. What did you hear? Do you remember what you heard while you were on that roof during that time? I heard everyone talking around me and saying things like, this must be Bin Laden. And I never even heard that name before. Oh, I see. Things like that. And then, I mean, the loudest noise is when the building came down. Wow. That was much louder than a plane hitting it. But you heard the plane hit it. Yeah, I mean, just faintly. Just, I can't imagine when I ever, I've seen that documentary where they show the people jumping off out the windows and all, I just can't fathom seeing that sort of real time like that. Yeah, it was tough. Uh, how did that affect your faith? How did your faith, did your faith affect you during that time? When, I was in a pretty good spot at that okay. point when it came to my faith. So then it was just, you know, I found that experience really brought me closer to New York City, made me a New Yorker, actually, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Coming from Canada, I needed kind of that was my marriage to the United States. And to have that experience. Wow. And to kind of rebuild with New Yorkers. I, I don't know, in some ways, I consider it a privilege. Yeah, I could see that. So did that, did that. So when when that event ended, did, did then you become engaged in the community at point? Did you start? Yeah. 
Did that I, I give you really... that sort of that desire of your heart, that next purpose? Where did it take you? I, I call myself a New Yorker at that point, but it it um, I don't know. It wasn't related to nine eleven, but I did get an offer for a startup in the financial services, what we would now call fintech, and I took it. How did they find you? You're a retired twenty five year old. You're not you even know, on the map. They had a friend in Canada that they had asked, do you know anyone who could come be my technical co-founder? Oh, okay. And the guy told him, there's this guy hiding in New York called Bobby. <laughs> Call him. So that's how, <laughs> she found, that's how she found me. And, you know, she was from Merrill Lynch and we kind of partnered up and built syndicated loan trading platform. A syndicated loan trading platform of which you knew nothing about. Zero. Who knew something about syndicated loan trading platforms? She did. She did. So okay, was, good. She knew it. She understood it. And I had to learn it, which I love learning. And it was kind Where of cool. Where did that working. go, that company? Got acquired as well. So you built something that was worthy of it. How big did that company get? Um, it didn't get big in terms of like employees because it was all technology, but it was trading billions of dollars of loans. And who did you maybe sell that to? Maybe trillions. It was it was by maybe trillions of dollars of loans. Oh, I see. It was okay. Of loans, yeah. It was. We didn't like use the, words like we didn't say words like trillions back then. Yeah, maybe not. We just said billions. Yeah, that was a lot. Trillions, I think, came. I think that came about more in like nineteen, um, two thousand fifteen, sixteen. You know, it's one that probably right. <laughs> yeah. So, who'd you sell that to? That got bought by a company out of Texas. They were um, so there's three parties in a loan: a buyer, a seller, and an agent. Yeah. And I think they managed the buyers. So they acquired us and then sold us as a service to all the buyers. Wow. Did you, uh, and how many people were in the company at the point of sale when you sold? Maybe 10. 10. 10 to 20, yeah. It was like your typical SaaS company. What kind of money Maybe. was that company making with all those trades like that? I don't you recall. Were shaving, you were just shaving probably less. Yeah, we were, we were, I mean, we were charging maybe two, 300 bucks a trade. Okay. You could charge. You could charge a little more because it was big numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I don't remember the exact number to be honest, but it was doing well. It was. It was kind of the first SaaS companies. Like it was so early in the SaaS world, and charging transaction costs were so early for internet companies. What year was that? Um, two thousand one. And when did you sell? Two thousand six. Six. So five years later, you sold another company. You make it just sound so easy starting companies and selling companies. And so then what do you, now you're, now you're an unemployed 31 year old. (laughs) Now I'm moving to Atlanta. How did Atlanta uh, come up? She's from Atlanta originally. Okay. I don't like snow. So we weren't going to go to Toronto. I didn't know that there were Christian Indians in Atlanta. There are. It's a it's a sizable community. It is. How many people are? How many Christian Indians are in Atlanta? You must know that you've been here a long time now. There's thousands. Like yeah. ten thousand or like a hundred. Probably 
We're probably in the third generation at this point. I don't know, think about 100,000. I don't know if that's the number. but I didn't even know that there was uh, Christian Indian churches in Atlanta. There are a couple. Just a couple, okay. And where are they located? All over, Lawrenceville, Decatur, Alpharetta. Oh, so there's more than a couple. There's a few. Yeah, there's... there's are they generally Christian Indian churches? They they generally stay pretty small and then replant. And... Yeah, I mean they probably tap out around three hundred people. Yeah, so they don't get to mega church size and all that. That's not part of the culture of it all. No, I mean there are in some states where we've been there a long time, like Texas. They yeah. get that big. New York can get that big. These are the two centers huh. we landed okay. in when we came from India. So she, so she must have. Uh, where did she wind up getting her residency? Was that? Yeah. So she went to Emory, then she went to Augusta for med school, and then she went to residency in NYU. Well, what was she doing came. in New York then? Residency. That was residency. That was at residency. NYU. Yes. And then she. What did she get in Atlanta at Emory? That was her undergrad. See, so she's from Atlanta. Emory. She's from Atlanta. Yeah. She went to Augusta Medical College. Is it Augusta Medical College? It's called Medical College of Georgia, MCG. Medical College of Georgia, right. My doctor went there. <laughs> uh, my first doctor, he's retired now. And then she gets her residency in New York. And then tell me how she gets back to Atlanta. So now we're we're living in New York and we're like, okay, this is a tough place to raise a family. Yeah. So are we going to move to Toronto or Atlanta? Because we want babysitting. We want grandparents. You're so practical. But how did she get a job down here? Oh, that wasn't too bad. When we first came here, she took a year off. And then she just started applying. She's a pediatrician, so it's pretty Oh, I see. It's okay. Too hard. Yeah. That's, uh, did she join a big group? Is that what she did? No, just a small practice with one other person. Okay. So then you... You're in Atlanta. You're an unemployed, or re- I shouldn't say that. That's that's an insult. You're a retired, thirty-two year old now, right? What do you do? what do you do then? Well, that's when kind of band of coders. Oh, it was okay. We got that going. Yeah, had that idea that come up. What well, was the I mean, idea? What was the problem that you saw that you said, you know, this, I should do this. I wasn't really trying to solve anything. I mean, the company I sold. <laughs> All right. You were just busy having kids at that time, right? Yeah, no, it's pretty well it. We were just a baby machine. The um, <laughs> the company I had sold, a lot of those people now had matured into executive positions. And some of them, you know, they were calling me to fix problems that they were having with their projects. And, you know, before long, you kind of, recruiting people and doing work. And, you know, during the early days after we sold the company, there were a few that engineers that weren't too happy being part of a big conglomerate either. So when they phoned me, I said, you know, if you want to come out, bring whoever you want and I can show you guys how to do this, how to build a firm. And they came and said, we're the band of coders. They came up with the name. And I started this journey, which I'm still on, which is teaching engineers how to build kind of a business software practice. Well, that's a big jump. Okay. So you get these guys come to okay. town. 
And where were they from, Toronto? Mm-hmm. And you kind of showed them what you do and how you do it, right? And they go back to Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. So how does Band Decoders go from there? And what, well, there were so many. Wait, 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 wait. What's the business model? What's in it for you? I mean, how does that work? I mean, so. Yeah, how does it work? Were, What's the business model of Band Well, there were so many iterations trying to figure out what the best way to do it. The first iteration was I was providing all the services they needed and they were paying for it. So they were paying for bookkeeping. They were paying for marketing. They were paying for like everything that an engineer just doesn't want so to do. So you were the back-end business back-end. That's what you were. The, you were the business back-end. Okay, good. Yeah. And they would just pay for eat by the hour or whatever, whatever structure made sense for all okay. of those, each yeah. of those services. Um, but that's from not there, fun we, stuff for you to do. No, it's not great. Though I love seeing them. What was getting me going was seeing them succeed. Okay. And learning and doing what I did early in my career. But that model didn't work great. And so we've evolved since then. And now it's more kind of a rev share approach where we're partners um, well, did they you, did, so you had the guys in toronto did how did it expand did it expand to anywhere else or was yeah it just, we just started marketing it in the states and then engineers started lining up wanting to open band decoders office what was your pitch open a band decoders office so you and were selling oh, franchises in effect right yeah and on, only engineers are allowed so well, how did you know how to how did the engineers find you i mean how did all that work we would go and do meetups. We would, you know, we're trying to find the top 10%. So we would go and market on different platforms and say, we're coming to town and we're looking for a leader to lead Band Decoders Nashville, let's say. Yeah. And they would all show up for a meetup and we would present. And then we'd narrow down and pick one. What did one look like? What was the, what, would, what did it turn out to be the prototype for? Um, it, it's really was simple. It, was it Bobby Jr. or what? What, what did they look like? <laughs> I don't know if it was Bobby Jr., but it was very simple. I would describe it as this: if I was asking, if I was coming to Atlanta and I said, "Charlie, I need your help finding one of these," I would describe it as, "I need to find an engineer that's super technical and passionate still, yeah, and keeps up to date with software technology that's evolving quickly. They need to be a great communicator." Ooh. And they need to be fun to hang out with. Oh my gosh. And that's usually the response we would get. That's a pretty yeah, I was gonna say that's a pretty thin group right there. Thin group, but that's what it takes. So it was very so was it a slow go sort of finding that leader for band decoders? Yeah. I mean, in some ways it was slow because you gotta, you know, come up with formulas on who where are they. But what we're offering is unique. So for them, because we're literally treating an engineer like a human being and with the potential of running a business, which not a lot of people are treating them like that. Um, so they just was, want this to, was you going back to, to, I get these guys. Yeah. I get them, right? Yeah. Everyone else is just treating them as coders and just build my product. And that's all I care about. Stay out of the business side. Just stay in and the they, cave. And, and, and what you tapped into is their need for interesting projects, right? Their need for respect yes. and their need for autonomy. Yes. That's really, what you were, that was what you were solving. Autonomy and authority to do a good job. Say that again. The autonomy and authority to do a good job. 
because they want to do a good job. Well, tell me about the economy side of that. The economy, I get the authority. What's the economy? The autonomy, sorry. Autonomy. autonomy. Okay, I'm sorry. Yes. All right. So if you find this needle in a haystack in Nashville and you go, you're it, what happens, what happens next? Then we train them. We have a bunch of training that we put them through. And then we start, and we, I, I believe you can only learn so much in theory. Then we throw, we throw <laughs> well, them in true. the fire. Yeah, we throw them in the fire. We start saying, okay, let's, let's start talking to leads and let's see if you can, you know, convince someone that you're the guy to build their dream and their solution. And we just Where do they get them. the leads from? We provide them. Oh, you do? That's so you do marketing service. in Nashville? Mm-hmm. Oh, I see what you're doing. Yeah, so you are. You're a franchise is what, the way you Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, we we don't have the complexities of legally going down that road. But yeah, are these in a lot people, of ways. Are these people employees of Band of Coders? They are um, partners. They're partners. So it's an LLC? It is an LLC. Okay. So, uh, but... Do they do they uh, enjoy the profitability of? Do they enjoy the distributions of? Um, at the end of the year from profits, or do they? Or is their model more based on what they produce? So they sort of like you eat what you kill kind of a deal. It's based on their office, and then based on how they do, they can graduate into the mothership as well. Are they are they all oh, individual to- LLCs, or is it one big LLC? One big. One big LLC. How about that? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So how many cities? Uh, so how did you how did you move from this back-end administrative fee-based model to the revenue sharing model? Because that's a big pivot. Yeah, we found that the um, when you get to know the engineers and you actually try some of these things, even that first model was too much administration for them because they still have to pay us and manage their own LLC, let's say. I see. Okay. They didn't even, they didn't even want to do that. Like, <laughs> and, I, and I don't say that in a negative way. They really just want to focus on solving the client's problem. Well, that's and, why I made the comment when you said that's the service I was offering the guys in Toronto. And I'm saying, well, you don't want to do that. You don't like that. And here you are saying they didn't like it either. Well, oh, duh, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They still felt like they were doing a lot of admin and that's not exactly what they wanted so how do you pivot to this revenues how do you change the model then now everything's taken care of so now they're part of the mothership where all of those services are kind of built in and they don't have to file tax you know do a tax return for an llc or close the books of every month how did you know what was a fair deal for them we experimented i thought it okay yeah we just looked at what their market what they could get in the market and we're constantly looking at and make sure that we can offer that they have a path to get way more than that and no ceiling, which is what we like to offer them. How do you get to a point where you don't have people saying, I can't believe you're taking this from me. I did all the work, you know, in other words, this sort of jealousy greed piece that sort of fits in, you know, that's sort of a human nature deal, right? You know, of course I need you. I need you. I need you. I need you to, you know, why are you bothering me? You know, I got this figured out. (laughs) It sort of switches like really quickly. Yeah, it happens. You, it's part of it's part of the journey. 
So you just, you just almost, that when it comes you up. You just and, wait till it comes, and then you hope that you're both committed to each other to sail through it and come out the other side. But there is another side. It's just part of the maturity. And has it? Model. And and sometimes then it probably depending on this is people. I mean, people are, you know, you can't control people, right? People make their own decisions, and they have their own consequences based on the decisions they make. So has your retention uh, with these partners remained fairly high? Yeah, it's not bad. I would say maybe 10 to 20% will move on. Either they'll decide they really, truly just want to be a coder, yeah, which is fine. We're helping them discover that um, in, a, in a kind of a less risky way than maybe doing a product startup or something that'll risk everything, which is fine. That's our goal to help them discover themselves. And then others might be, yeah, I could, some will say I can do this on my own and we encourage them to go try it. So that's a 10 to 20, and that's a 10 to 20% turnover per year. No, just, I'm just calculating our total. So let's say you lose one every six that you bring in. Okay. So that's so part of the model happens. though. You know that this is, yeah, you know that. Yeah. Have you okay. gotten better at predicting it? Yeah. Yeah. We're better at the recruiting. We're better at looking so. at you would have to be, Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, eventually when you get to the R point where we're really good at it, you can, you just let people go too. When you kind of see it, it's not going to work. You don't wait for them. You don't have to wait for them because you can kind of see, you've seen this before, this pattern. One of the things that I've always admired about you, Bobby, is you make, it's just, and it comes across in this interview. I mean, you're just so relaxed. It's like, you don't have a, you don't appear to ever to have a moment of stress. Yet here you are dealing with, you create a model, this band of coders, and it sounds so super friendly and everybody gets along, but it's people. It's a lot of people, okay, that are out there. How many people are in the organization now? I would think we're over and we're approaching 100 again, like we were last You know, so you got your people here that are kind of taking care of the mothership, as you say, and then you got these people that are in how many different cities now? Seven. Seven different cities. And look at you. You just don't have a line on your face. Yeah, but I have gray hair, remember? Yeah, I know. You have the gray hair. That's exactly <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I blame that on the kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, then uh, the worry is in the right place, okay? That's, that's what's most important is those kids. Uh, so you seem to, to handle it very well. So is it a, is it, is, would, would you say it's a lower stress model? Yeah. I mean, because it's always nice to have partners. Like, hmm. I think I've always, I've, I've definitely learned. I mean, of course, there's a hard part to it as well, but, you know, and there's certain partnerships I wouldn't recommend and there's, you know, things that, you know, can destroy you in partnerships as well. But I think I've brought all my experiences to bear on the way we're doing it in band decoders. And, yeah, you know, you don't, you don't feel alone at the top. I mean, you're still kind of alone at the top, but. You know, there you have aligned interests. Let's put it that way. And for me, a partner is my definition of a partner is someone with aligned interests. Okay. How do and you I don't feel alone. How did you? And this is something that just it struck me, and I kind of left it behind. I want to come back to it though. Is when you came to Atlanta, okay, and your wife, you said she took a year off after her residency, right before she got the job as a pediatrician. Pediatricians work pretty hard. A lot of activity there. She's married to a man who is independently wealthy. She doesn't need 
she doesn't need to work. She could just be a mom if she wanted to be. How did that, how did you guys work through that? Because part of what drives us as a young couple is we want to make a better life for ourselves, right? And that usually translates into making money to buy the right house, to live in the right area, all those things, kids in the right schools. Well, that was like all off the table. How, how do you, and that's an unusual thing to deal with at such a young age. Yeah. How did you deal with that? I mean, I told her not to work, but, <laughs> but she is a strong woman and you know, 10 years or whatever takes forever to get through to become a doctor. Yeah. So the thought well, of it's not a lifelong, it's, it seems like a lifelong commitment. Yeah. Yeah. So the thought of, and it makes sense. The thought of not using it was not an option for her. So she, she works two days a week, you know? So it's like, you know, we, I think we have a good in between. She gets to. Oh, I see what you did. Okay. Continue to improve her trade and become a better doctor, which is, you know, she's a firstborn you know, like we're the typical Indians. I became an engineer. She became a doctor. We, we made our parents happy. Um, so, you know, I think we're trying to find that balance between the two. It's still, then you've it's got still- your side too. That was the other question. And I kind of jumped back to your wife, but then I jump forward to you now and say, you know, this band of coders thing, you know, there are going to be issues. There are going to be people that are loyal to you. And then those are people that aren't loyal to you. You got to deal with these issues all day long. You got guys calling you up and complaining that, you know, you didn't do this right or whatever it is, or you're not providing me enough marketing and you're not, and you're sitting there going like, do I need this? You know, because you don't have to have that, you know, it's yeah, nice. I mean, there's things. income and all associated with it, but it's not something that's changing your life at this time, that, that money coming in, in other words. There are those days. So what keeps you going? Why do you why do you why did you why do you keep with it, if you will? You know? This I mean the same reason you almost wouldn't keep with it, the people. Hmm. <laughs> um even I've learned, I think I've been doing this long enough that even when I feel like that, I just tell I just tell my stuff. You just what your stuff? I just tell them. Like, hey, I'm getting kind of tired here. You guys are exhausting me. Okay. You know. So you give pushed me, a me too far here, right? Yeah, just you you give me a reason to keep going. Oh, okay. Like I just involved. You know, you wake up every day like you did in New York and said, you know, I'm God's child and uh, Jesus is sort of leading me on this walk. And today's this purposeful walk, right? Yeah. So that's what keeps you, you can- going is I think that that's kept you going. Yeah. And when you can, and then because of that, you can be transparent and vulnerable. And mm. my team usually responds like they'll be like, you know, that's how we learn. We kind of push each other to the edge. I see. <laughs> um, well, the dangerous thing is not saying anything. And I think, you know, just having being vulnerable is helpful in those situations. Mm. I like that. I like where you say, like, you're pushing me too far here. I like that. That's a. You know, that's, that's such an obvious thing to say, but how many people would say that because it would show a vulnerability and I don't want to show that. So I'm going to press in harder, right? Mm-hmm. Which makes things even worse. That's what I've learned. <laughs> oh, you did? Okay. The hard way over all these years of many companies. So you have done that in the past and sure, then it didn't work well. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear that you're a normal human being. And so then Absolutely. what happened through this pandemic? What, what, uh, what have you learned there? What came well, when it hit, 
Yeah, I mean, when it hit, a lot of our corporate clients pulled back, which made sense. That's why, you know, I always tell if I'm advising anybody, I tell them, you know, you hire companies like Panda Coders so that either you can scale up or scale down mm-hmm. depending on your needs. And that was a great time to scale down. Okay. And so that made sense. So that wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a shocker. I wasn't upset about it. But it wasn't a time I really felt like during the pandemic to try and figure out some marketing scheme on how to get people to buy custom software development services. Like I, I know a lot of people did step up and find ways to get their message across, but I wasn't feeling it. Um, So, you know, I just, we just kind of went into like, okay, we'll just wait until you're ready. They just scaled down. They didn't leave. And we're like, we're here for you when you're ready to scale up again. Um, Did you, uh, did other opportunities then start to present themselves? I mean, not the first two months, like the first two or three months, the whole world was just scared. Yeah, they just locked down, right? Yeah, just locked down. Confusion and I decided means, not to. Confusion in a market means no decisions. Yeah, so yeah. I just kind of decided not to fight it. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to try and find any opportunity through it. We're just going to be there for our clients, yeah. be supportive, and do the wise things that we need to do to make sure we come out the other end terming controlling our costs and whatnot and yeah. we just just kind of took it easy to be honest with you like um yeah but when trust. i was talking to seth he told me that you uh tripped on to uh, another startup yes well because i was taking it easy <laughs> uh, and god was leading you yes that gave room for the mind to think of how to solve other problems out there and you know, my wife went on unemployment, actually. Like, it was unbelievable that a doctor would be on in the unemployment line. But no patients were coming to the office anymore. So her office put her on unemployment. And that just kind of caught my attention. So I'd be like, I didn't marry a doctor. I'm the person who's supposed to mess up and be on unemployment, not the doctor I married. Um, and, you know, when I dug in a little bit, I realized, like, patients were just scared of the waiting room. Like, it's not like they didn't want to see their doctor or they were truly scared of the doctor themselves. Like, it was a waiting room was the problem. Yeah. And that's where we're like, hey, this is solvable. And, you know, I turned around and called one of the band decoders offices and said, I want to hire you to build a product. And I became the client and leveraged the engine that we built, told them the idea. And... We built a product that moves the waiting room for doctors into the parking lot. So patients only walk in when the doctor's ready to see them. And everything is contact free. So you can do everything from home or from the car. And when you arrive in the parking lot, you just click I'm here. And the doctor gets notified. And when they're ready to actually see you in the exam room, they'll invite you in. So it's just basically a browser-based system too, right? It's an app, actually. It's an app. Okay. (laughs) So the mm-hmm. doctor has the, the the receptionist and the doctor's office has the app. Mm-hmm. And then they tie in. They can see everybody who's waiting in the parking lot. and But it doesn't tie just, in. It doesn't have APIs or tie into sort of the, uh, the patient management systems that so many of these. We are starting like I to. Go to. I go to three different, you go to three or four different doctors and they all have their own little. Yeah proprietary, not proprietary, but they're pro- the platform that they embraced, right? You know, yes. so that yeah. has all my medical records in it and it has my the appointment setting and all that. 
it's just a mess. I don't, I, I can never remember which one belongs to which doctor. Right, right. You know? <laughs> so how yes. do you, how did you, how, how does your system or your app sort of, does it do anything with all that nonsense or just very simply, we're going to tell you, you, like, where do you get the appointment? Let's say that. That's where you. Where do you make the appointment? In other words, the appointment is made on that platform that the doctor has. Generally, yeah. So. Right? You're yes. sitting here now saying I can come into the office. So are you making me put the appointment in again or somebody, where does it come no. from? No, we, we, the, the doctor will now, when they send you an appointment reminder, they'll say, use the app when you arrive. Okay. So you just say, I'm here when you get there. We don't, we don't make you enter any of that again. Now we do things now that will collect your, ins- you can take a picture of your insurance card. You can answer the COVID questions your health information, you can put it in our app and we'll send it to the doctor so you don't have to fill in the paper form. And we can send that to any of your doctors. Doesn't matter what system they're using. You just use one app and you can share your information with anyone. I see. And then the doctors then can upload it into their systems. Yeah. So then it shows up on their desktop and they drag and drop it into the. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So hopefully one of the biggest problems with uh, selling doctors, and this is from years of experience here is, they're like ants. And so they're really hard. There's no, the only distribution channel that has ever been put in place, as far as I know, to reach doctors is through pharmaceutical companies. They like know where all of them are and they have people on the street that get to them. But trying to build a company, a software company to get to doctors was always a very challenging, challenging business. How did you, uh, how are you, how are you approaching that from a marketing standpoint? It is hard. I learned that the hard way. I wish, wish I talked to you before. Um, but nonetheless, like... <laughs> you probably wouldn't have done it if I told you that. Maybe not. Um, it's hard, but COVID has helped. I mean, really, in the end of the day, the patients are the ones demanding. I'm not going to pick up a pen and a clipboard and write all this stuff. I'm not going to sit in a crowded waiting room for 30 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, you know I, I'm just not going to do it. And I'm not going to come to the doctor. And that's what they said. I'm not even going to come see you right. if that's the way it's going to be. So it, that's, and that's really why we had the courage to even take a shot at this is like, we see this little window where a startup could get some attention and doctors would kind of have no choice. And so we took it and that gave us enough of a wedge where we can. Do you think that on. you're going to be threatened by one of two things? I mean, one is telemedicine, right? Now that uh, Medicare's payment, well, the, the 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 insurance companies are now reimbursing for even telemedicine, uh, televideo kind of meetings. Right? I mean, um, uh, visits, and then so that's one threat. And the other is we're just going to go back to normal. <laughs> How does that affect your business? Um, on the going back to normal, which I think is the main one, telemedicine, you know let's take kids and stuff. It doesn't really work great, um, you know, to have a two month old on telemedicine. Right. Oh, so you specialize so, in pediatricians? Yeah. We're starting with pediatricians. I see. Okay. So I can mm-hmm. say, yeah, I agree with that. It doesn't work great for kids. Right. I mean, you can't just sit yeah. there and say, so to the two year old, so how are you feeling today? Right. <laughs> right. Right. And then of course there's always for all, all of us, there's some level of medicine's going to be physical because we are physical. Yeah. So that's until we're digitized, that's not going to change. So 
I'm not too concerned. Now I can go in the office again and I can sit there with, you know, 10 other people. Can I? So let's talk about the second one. Um, Our initial surveys have proven nobody likes the waiting room with or without COVID. So we're still betting that it's an outdated concept. The idea of sitting there with a table and old magazines and waiting 30 minutes when there's so many other locations that are so much better, including your car, which people really do like their car these days. Um, thanks to mobile, well, like those, thanks I'll to tell you this, people who don't have children, people who've never been to a pediatri- pediatrician's office don't get what you're saying. But no, if you don't. have children and you've been to a pediatrician's office, you know, you do not want to be in that waiting room. No, it is, it is. germ city, man. <laughs> just, all these sick kids and they're all slobbering over everything that they're around. So I think that that particular specialty, yeah, that makes a heck of a lot of sense. It really does. Yeah. That's pretty cool. All right. Well, is it going well for you? Yeah. Yeah. We're approaching probably 100,000 patients at this point. And I don't think there's anything stopping us from getting to a million by the end of the year. And So how did you solve the problem? How do you get to the pediatricians? How do you get them on the system? How do, how do you sell it? Um, right now it's, we just send them postcards, we phone them and we just tell them the solution and they tell each other. And honestly, the most common way for us to get one is a healthcare worker takes their kid to the dentist, uses the app, goes back to their office and says, why don't we have this? How much does it cost? What's the cost for the, uh, it ranges from as low as, you know, $29 a month up to $99 a month. So it's really affordable. Per doctor? Mm-hmm. Per doctor. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. So you're not charging by the number of patients that are on it and all that because you quoted the number of patients that were on it. Yeah. We track, I mean, for what we're, our mission is to take the pain out of visiting the doctor. So, you know, we, we measure that by how many patients we've helped skip the waiting room. But if I'm two pediatricians in an office, it's a couple hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Well, it's hard to say no to that. Yeah. I have that option. That would be a no brainer. Yeah. Yeah. It's really That's pretty cool. Thank you. Well, what do you think? Uh, last question is just, so where's a uh, band of coders? You've been in band of coders for a while. You said you're in what? Six cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. seems like, uh, are you, do you have bigger plans for band decoders or you, you've kind of gotten it to a, a level that you're looking to uh, stay at? No, we're still working out some of our repeatable systems so that we could continue to scale. Like I would, I have no problem having a hundred engineers leading band decoders offices. I mean, you know, there's still pieces we need to figure out. And of course, COVID has introduced, you know, some questions on, whether you do it by city or specialty or whatnot, you know, how much work is going to be remote. I still do believe there's nothing like innovation is still better face-to-face specifically innovation. Like I think a founder would love to sit with their technical co-founder in a whiteboard and figure out where to go. Mm -hmm. Um, When we get down to coding, that's easier to, you know, when it's just turning it into zeros and ones, that's easier. And that's why we have offshore centers and things like that. That 
Oh, I'm very comfortable. Too. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, that I'm very comfortable. Of course, we're very good at getting the best cost effective and the best talent to, to build it. But coming up with what to build, which is a big value proposition of Panda Coders and when when to build what and what to build first, that we still feel there's there's something about understanding the culture of who you're building it for and mm-hmm. even physical proximity to the visionary to suss out the nuances of what yeah. they want to build. And do you do this for, uh, is it mostly corporations that are your customers or uh, small yeah, I mean, we have, all the medium-sized businesses or startups? Where, you, where do you? It ranges from customers like Uber all the way to companies you've never, little companies you've never heard of, some guy in their basement with an idea. No kidding. So, yeah. I mean, mostly it'll be someone innovative. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't usually get hired to build like the next expense management system for some department at the post office. Hmm. They're probably not going to call us. I'll keep you, so I should keep you in mind for startups that are, because the yeah. biggest problem that these startup, uh, a lot of our startup entrepreneurs, as we're getting into this next generation, if you will, they're people who have expertise in the market whether it be sales and market or customer success expertise or um, or, uh, or sort of hard product development, if you will. But they, and they have an idea and they know what they want to do to automate, but they, they don't have a coder. They don't have a technology guy. And they're like, where do I go? You know, yeah. and then you try to find a technology to guy to come on full time. And he's like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I like yeah. where I live. I like what I do, you know, leave me alone. I love this freedom. So do you bridge that gap? Would that would, yeah, would you be cost effective for somebody to do that? Yeah, that's our sweet spot, right? Because you can fractionalize the, the CTO and get that wisdom of 20 years of experience. You don't need it. You don't need that person writing low-level code. So we can fractionalize that person. That person can lead and pick the developers that need to get the product built at more cost-effective rates okay. and can manage manage the whole thing. So... You know, for that visionary, non-technical visionary, it's like the most frustrating thing when you want to give birth to an idea and you don't have, you know, you can't do it. And we're there for that. We're there to actually walk you through, you know, you, long, we always say, just about, show up with the net, just show up with the longer term though. And we'll help you transition out to your own team. But eventually you do need your own team. Yeah. I mean, for parts of it, I mean, you, once you realize you can keep a team going and you you should start bringing parts in-house that are essential to I what see, you're doing. That makes sense. Well, one of the things my is I see that you, you really do at some point need a partner. You know, if you're the if you're the market problem guy and you know, you kind of see it and how it all and you understand how these the market works and what you're trying to solve, you need that technical sort of partner that you sort of finish in each other's sentences, you know, and you're thinking about it 24-7. And that's what really makes sort of greatness kind of going forward. As opposed yeah. to, oh, I got a product and I, I need to define it. You got it done. Now it's done. You know, software, right. I always used to say, people used to call me after we did a release. And uh, this is years and years ago. And they would always, the, the user would always say, does it do this? And I'm like, oh, my God. You know, how did we not think of that? You know, we just put in like a tremendous amount of time putting this next release out. And so I finally came to the conclusion, software when, when running is obsolete. <laughs> because it's all ideas, right? I mean, yes. you look at it That's and you're good. like, oh, it should do this. And you're like, you know, it should. You know, we just didn't think about that one. 
It's crazy. It's good. But yeah. I love what you say, which is what was it? Something I read it, I think, on LinkedIn there. What did you say? You believe that software, you build software to make people's dreams come true or something like that? Yeah, I don't know exactly what I said on LinkedIn, but I do believe software takes kind of the amazing, unique expertise and experience of an individual and shares it with the world because we turn you, we turn you into software, really. And then it's so easily distributable and everyone gets to experience what you have been doing manually all these years. Right. So you turn, what did you say? You turn me into software? Your, Your experience, your expertise, your skills. We turn it into code and share it with the world. Because that's what I see that vision is, right? It's what you know. Well, that's a kind of vision then. Software software will eat the world. Isn't that what? Uh, yeah. Andreessen said. Andreessen, yeah. Mark Andreessen said. Software is eating the world. I love that. Well, thanks for this time. This has been spectacular. I think uh, there's been a lot. lot of lessons that were learned here, both you know, in business and startup and uh, transitioning. And um, God, I never thought about you being in New York for nine, uh, what, what you, 9-11. You know, that's uh, what a incredible experience. So now you're really a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker. You're a New Yorker. How about that? All right. Well, thanks. I'm going to just close us out here. Anything else you want to you. add or are we good? We're good. Thanks for having me. Oh, this is fab- fabulous here. Let me get this. Uh, let's see. All right. Well, there you have it. Bobby, yeah, thanks oh. for your time today. This has been spectacular, and I want to thank everyone that okay? that's taken our time and um, that took the time to listen to this, and I look forward to uh, seeing you next time. Again, if you don't want to miss an episode, go to paprelli.com, and uh, I'll see you then. Take care.